the Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Gray's Inn Students. Hello and welcome to the Raising the Bar podcast with me, Alana Hughes. This is the Meet the Barrister series in which I speak to a different guest barrister on each episode. The aim of the Meet the Barrister series is to demonstrate that the bar is not a one-size-fits-all sort of profession as it is sometimes wrongly assumed to be. Barristers come from a wide variety of backgrounds and specialise in many different areas of law. There is something for everyone. Tonight's episode is a very special one in that this is the first Meet the Judge episode as part of the Meet the Barrister series. His Honour Judge Aubrey QC was called to the bar in 1974 and practised for over 30 years in Liverpool specialising in crime. His Honour Judge was appointed a recorder in 1995 and then took silk in 98. He was then appointed as a circuit judge on the Northern Circuit in 2005. His Honour Judge is a bencher at Grey's Inn and has very kindly joined me this evening to give an insight into life as a busy Crown Court judge. Hello Judge and welcome to the podcast. Hello. I just want to start our discussion tonight with some information about your background and where it was that your interest in law came from. Well, I came from a very ordinary family. Um, I had no legal background in terms of relatives or friends in the law. Uh, In fact, I initially wanted to be a social worker, but my father didn't think too much of that. And he suggested the law. And so it was, albeit reluctantly, that my career path began. Uh, I was the first in my extended family to go to university although that was in doubt, as my A-level grades were in truth very modest, and I'd already applied to a number of polytechnics as they were then. Uh, Liverpool, to my surprise, uh, accepted me. Uh, My father died in my first year at university, uh, and that uh, was a challenge in itself. Uh, And so my interest uh, in the law began from university days. Um, Looking back, perhaps I could say this, I had two clear advantages. I went to a good state grammar school, which instilled a strong work ethic. And I was fortunate in I had a supportive family, not in the financial sense, but in so many other ways. Money was tight. Uh, My father was deceased. My mother did not work, although I was fortunate Uh, I obtained a local authority grant and I was awarded two exhibitions from uh, the inn. I also worked on building sites and with a dust cart to supplement my income, which enabled me to complete uh, a six-month pupillage in London uh, before um, I commenced a tenancy in Liverpool. And in terms of the early days of your practice, Were you keen to specialise in crime for the very beginning or how did that trajectory come about in terms of the development of your practice? It was always my intention to practice in uh, crime. Um, I'd gained that pupillage in London through the inn. I cannot say that the process was as competitive and as formal as it is now, uh, but perseverance and good luck uh, won the day. 
but there were many pupils in chambers. Uh, I was not able to obtain a tenancy in London. Uh, can I say we were in the 70s and the last two tenants taken on, their fathers happened to be judges uh, at the Bailey. Uh, but we have progressed. So it was, I moved on back to Liverpool to a bedsit and a second six months pupillage and thereafter a tenancy in Liverpool. Always uh, my intention to practice in crime, but I had obtained that pupillage purely by chance, being at the right place at the right time. I'd not been subjected to the strains and stresses of those applying for pupillage now, but that is not to say I've not had setbacks and rejections along the way. However, my life in the law, the criminal law, was now just beginning uh, in 1975. And so you spent 20 years at the junior bar before you decided to take silk. What factors were in play in your decision to take silk? Well, taking silk, uh, that was a big step. Again, it was something I believe I grew into. Why did I take silk um, as a junior at the criminal bar, uh, I felt I could do that and sometimes even felt um, I could do that uh, better. I hope that doesn't sound uh, arrogant. Uh, it wasn't uh, intended uh, to uh, be so. And then I made an application for silk. Um, I didn't get it uh, the first time round. In actual fact, another David Aubrey Queen's Council took silk that uh, year, but I received so many letters of congratulations, um, I thought I ought to put uh, my hat in the ring uh, for a second time. And on that occasion, um, I uh, did uh, succeed. And in terms of the very sort of general and broad changes that tech and silk brings about for your practice, can you, re you reflect on those and sort of provide an, a bit of an insight to listeners into how your practice might change broadly when you take silk? Well, as far as I was concerned, whilst um, I did practice in Liverpool, um, I was instructed elsewhere around the country uh, and it involved a lot of travelling. So I was away from home a considerable amount uh, of time. I remember there was a solicitor uh, who probably should have been sectioned, uh, but sent me a lot of interesting, rewarding uh, and challenging uh, work. But it meant, as I say, that I was away from home uh, and uh, my son was young. Uh, so I started to think for how long I would uh, be in silk for. You are the first judge to join me on the podcast. And I think that a lot of people would be very interested to hear from a judge's perspective about the process and procedure of that career change, essentially, from a barrister to a judge. At what point, generally, do barristers in their career begin to think about becoming a judge? And then more specifically, at what point did that become a career plan for yourself? Well, let me start, if I may, with the appointment process. The appointment process to the judiciary is now very uh, different. 
uh, when I was appointed a, a circuit judge. It was the year before the Judicial Appointments Commission came into being. Uh, the process now involves uh, exams, interviews, competence tests, role play uh, and uh, the like. Uh, it is rightly far more transparent uh, that it that it was uh, when I was appointed. But I firmly believe there are some who somehow are born to be judges. Others simply grow to become judges. But there is no doubt that the touchstone is most definitely possessing the necessary competences and not any other factor. Uh, when I decided to uh, apply to become a judge, I had considered that I may now uh, possess the necessary competences. But that is when one might start thinking about being a judge. And what, if I may, would you consider those key competences to be? Well, the skills required uh, there are many. It's a long list uh, of independence, impartiality, integrity, confidence, a calm authority, uh, humility, propriety, a thorough knowledge uh, of uh, the law. Uh, but uh, it's even more uh, than that, uh, in my view. It's about listening. It's about being patient. It's about being fair. Uh, understanding people's weaknesses, uh, self-awareness, uh, acknowledging one's own bias and prejudices, uh, recognising unconscious uh, bias, uh, and much more. Just going back to the process of a move to the judiciary and an appointment to the judiciary, some research that I tried to do online about how barristers take that leap showed up that traditionally becoming a recorder was the first step on the judicial ladder for barristers while solicitors tended to become district judges. I don't know if that was your experience or if you think that that tradition remains alive now. Well I have no doubt whatsoever that solicitors make uh, extremely good judges and now they have uh, the opportunity so to do. Um, as I said earlier, uh, the focus uh, is on uh, the necessary competences, uh, and it's illustrated now uh, by a much uh, wider eligibility. Age, uh, young age, is another factor. Judges now uh, are appointed, some of them at an extremely uh, young age, uh, why is that? Because they have been through uh, the process and the Commission has determined that they do possess the necessary competences irrespective of a... I just make a brief reference to diversity. Uh, I believe the judiciary is becoming more diverse. That does not mean that we do not have a long way to go. Uh, and to ensure that we are truly representative uh, of the society uh, that we serve. Uh, but it does take time. Uh, being a recorder 
uh, does allow one the opportunity to ascertain uh, whether the judiciary is for them. And it is a very different skill, if I may use this expression, acting as a referee as opposed uh, to being a striker. Uh, I have certainly been aware uh, of some recorders uh, who have discovered while sitting that in truth it is not for uh, them. But there is no doubt that uh, it is the first step uh, on uh, the uh, judicial ladder. How difficult do you think it is to exercise that juggling of wearing the advocate's hat one week and the judicial hat the next week, which is, of course, what recorders have to do while they are part-time sitting? I I think that can be uh, very, very difficult. From my own uh, experience, when I sat as a recorder, perhaps for uh, a week or two, uh, I felt that I was just learning to possess the competences, the skills, acting uh, as a referee or umpire, making sure that I was not entering the arena. And then my time sitting uh, as a recorder for a week or two uh, had come to an end. And then I would wait before I was sitting uh, again Uh, and then the whole process uh, would recommence. You've spoken about the judicial competences that are required of a judge. And just for the benefit of our listeners, I want to read out the promise that is contained within the judicial oath, which is that you will do right to all manner of people without fear or favour, affection or ill will. And you have mentioned impartiality as a as a competence that is required of a judge. I wanted to ask, how difficult is it, especially in the world that we live in today with mass media at our fingertips instantaneously, how difficult is it to remain impartial, particularly on the sorts of cases that are making the headlines and heading the newsstands before they have got to your bench? Well, the first thing I would like to say as far as the oath is concerned, um, I try and look at myself in the proverbial mirror every single day and remind myself of that solemn oath uh, that I took to do right to all manner of people without fear or favour, affection or ill will. Uh, I also remind myself that for all those uh, in front of me, it is one of the most important days in their lives. I would like to think that that not only keeps me grounded, but also reminds myself of the oath uh, that I took, uh, and also uh, that external factors that you have just uh, mentioned Uh, in truth, do not pass through uh, my mind. On the one hand, two questions. What do you enjoy most about being a judge? And then on the other hand, what is the most challenging aspect of your judicial role? Firstly, it's a huge privilege to see and hear about aspects of 
people's lives that most people do not. That is a privilege and a pleasure. Uh, You do have enormous power. You must use it wisely in accordance with the uh, law. But the enjoyment that I have is that every single uh, day uh, is different. Every single day you will meet the mad, uh, the bad uh, and the sad. Uh, Regrettably, almost every single day uh, you may have to sentence the mad, uh, the bad uh, and uh, the sad. But it is the vast uh, array of cases that may come before me, uh, whether they be class one cases of murder uh, or alternatively those uh, offences at the lower end of the criminal spectrum. But I remind myself that it's a huge privilege to see and hear about aspects of people's lives. It is one of the most important days uh, in their uh, respective lives. Uh, and that it, that is why I still, if I may use the expression, uh, enjoy my uh, work, albeit uh, that I may well be coming or entering the autumn uh, of uh, my judicial career. Uh, you mentioned challenges. Uh, there are many, but what do I find the most uh, challenging? Uh, I would say trials uh, involving young defendants, uh, and if convicted, sentencing uh, them. Uh, You have that young person's uh, whole future uh, in uh, your hands. Just following on from that then, and I suppose reflecting on your career at the bar before you became a judge, is there anything in particular that you particularly miss about private practice? And I wonder if it might be that in private practice you had the opportunity to defend those young defendants as opposed to having to be in the position where you're making a huge decision that will affect them for the rest of their lives. Yes, if I may, just before, and I've been reflecting on that last question as far as challenges uh, are concerned, Uh, Let me also say this, Um, every day uh, a judge is dealing with the trials and tribulations of a fellow human being. Uh, You have to remain objective, dispassionate uh, and focused. Uh, But there are always bound to be challenges, for example, sentencing in causing death by dangerous cases. Uh, They provide their own challenges. Uh, There simply are no winners in such cases. Uh, The death of a young child uh, or sentencing a single parent uh, to custody uh, are yet further examples. But you asked me uh, what I miss now that I uh, am on the uh, bench. Well, when I first went on the bench, I missed much. I missed the camaraderie uh, of the bar. I missed socialising. I missed my friends uh, from Chambers. But I've been fortunate uh, that whilst uh, I missed such people, friends, colleagues uh, from Chambers, 
uh, in times, uh, I have found many friends uh, amongst uh, the uh, judiciary. Uh, but I'm glad to say that lawyers uh, are not my only friends. Do you miss the advocacy? I did initially. As I say, it's a very different world uh, being a, a referee uh, or an umpire to being uh, a striker, uh, to being uh, the leader of a team directing your team involved in advocacy and the adrenaline uh, of all that that entailed. But in time, uh, you learn, you must step back, uh, be objective, uh, be dispassionate uh, and perform uh, a very different uh, role. And in terms of advocacy, I, I'm a second six pupil very recently on my feet and although I don't specialise in criminal law I would be very keen to know as I'm sure many listeners of this podcast would about the tips for advocacy from the judge's perspective. What is it that barristers can do in terms of their advocacy to be most helpful to a judge? Well, the first thing is, I'm glad to hear that uh, you are in your second six months pupillage and I wish you uh, all the best and good luck for the future. Uh, it is uh, a great life being at uh, the uh, bar. But if I were to give three advocacy tips, it's preparation, preparation, preparation. If you are prepared you are confident uh, and with confidence but not over confidence uh, should come clarity calmness uh, and order and in today's world where especially i think as a pupil or a junior we are confronted with very last minute briefs we are chasing very last minute papers and the element of preparation is something that we would love to have, but it's just not possible in the time afforded to us. How do you think we might best present our case in front of a judge without having had the opportunity to prepare as much as we would like? Well, spontaneity can sometimes be uh, an art of advocacy, but I, I would uh, like to, if I may, turn that question on its head uh, for a moment. Because if a judge perceives that uh, an advocate is ill-prepared for a case, there may be uh, many reasons for that ill-preparation, such as the one that uh, you have just uh, made reference to, uh, it is a late return. Uh, you have only just received uh, the papers. Uh, and I have seen, regrettably, judges becoming annoyed with ill preparation. Uh, and one of the qualities uh, of a judge uh, is not to become annoyed. Uh, and it's a very fine line uh, between annoyance uh, and bullying or the perception of bullying. 
And there may be many good reasons why uh, an advocate is ill-prepared. It may be uh, late instructions. There may be issues as far as that advocate is concerned. Uh, If it is laziness, then there is, uh, in truth, no excuse for it. But for a judge, and in part I'm revisiting one of the questions you asked me earlier, it's then how you manage uh, those issues uh, that is all important. Uh, It's absolutely essential for a judge to respect uh, all in front of you, Uh, exercising a calm authority in a controlled manner. I ensure that I never, if I may use the expression, tell advocates uh, off and always seek to deal uh, with such issues in a constructive way. So as far as the advocate is concerned, uh, who may be ill-prepared, if necessary, ask uh, for a short while uh, so that one can uh, seek to prepare oneself more. Uh, If they're late uh, instructions, it may well be uh, that one is ill-equipped at that time to represent one's uh, client. Um, As I said earlier, it's one of the most important days uh, in their life. Uh, And one must do everything possible uh, in those circumstances to ensure that the advocate is able uh, and well-equipped to ensure that his or her case is properly uh, presented uh, before that judge. You mentioned that you don't tend to tell barristers off in your courtroom. Is that limited to the issue of not being prepared because of late instruction or is that something that you would do generally and I suppose I'm asking this question as part of a wider question which is are there certain things that a barrister might do which particularly annoy you as a judge or certain things that barristers do generally which you're aware of are annoyance for the judiciary? Well as far as quote-unquote, telling an advocate off. It may well be uh, that an advocate does ask uh, an inappropriate question uh, or alternatively is repetitive in the questions uh, that the advocate is asking. But I am firmly of uh, the view uh, that it is possible for uh, a judge to move the case uh, on, to remind the advocate that in truth that uh, was an improper uh, question, but it's not so much perhaps what one says, uh, it's uh, how uh, one uh, says it. As far as any annoyance is concerned, I do get concerned if For example, uh, an advocate is late if witnesses are kept waiting. Again, I seek to remind myself that there may be good reasons uh, for standards not being adhered to, such as punctuality and an advocate being late 
uh, that one uh, is not uh, aware uh, of. Uh, so I think it's important for a judge, if I may use the expression, uh, to engage brain uh, before necessarily either becoming concerned or annoyed uh, about uh, a particular issue. The final topic that I hope to ask you some questions about this evening is that of well-being at the judiciary. Now, we know that well-being at the bar has become much more prominent a focus for barristers over the past few years and something that is very much promoted by the Bar Council and BSB. But we do know that the courts are under enormous pressure, particularly in light of the pandemic over the past 12 months. And you, you've mentioned already this evening how precious indeed the court time is. I just wondered in terms of the workload for judges and time management, is switching off for you very important? And to what extent do you have to personally deal with these pressures? There is no doubt uh, that a judge can be under enormous pressure. We're all human and we do not lose our inner being uh, when we walk into court uh, and sit on the bench. But in order to perform our judicial duties, uh, it's essential that we remain objective, dispassionate uh, and detached throughout. But that's not to say that I have not been affected, for example, by certain cases and it's difficult sometimes not to feel emotion, but one must hide it. I've been moved by many a victim personal statement, uh, and in one case moved by the raw grief uh, of a mother uh, and the deep remorse uh, of the defendant. Uh, I do not intend to disclose the details uh, out of respect to both. But that day uh, will stay with me uh, forever. Uh, so there can be uh, much pressure, but there are a number of mechanisms uh, to deal with uh, that pressure. Uh, one must keep things in perspective. Uh, and talking to my wife would be and is my first port of call. Colleagues are also a tremendous uh, sounding uh, board. Other than that, it is important to switch off uh, at times, taking holidays, having outside uh, interests. And I also remind myself uh, how fortunate uh, and privileged uh, I am to do that, uh, which I do. Finally, I want to ask if there are any standout moments or notable highlights from your career that just shine like a spotlight as you reflect back on everything that you have done? As far as standout moments are concerned, there are in truth so many, uh, but my standout moment is always uh, my last case, the last person uh, who has been uh, in front of me. But I am proud of certain things. And if I'm proud in truth of anything, uh, it has to be always trying to do my best, trying to do right. Uh, but if I had to choose one thing, 
Uh, it is having been involved in the advancements we have made in the criminal justice system as to how we approach children uh, giving evidence uh, and uh, the opportunity for them uh, for their cross-examination uh, to be pre-recorded prior to the date of trial. Another standout moment that I have, uh, of which uh, I am proud, and it's given me considerable satisfaction, uh, is that I am with another judge in Liverpool uh, in the process of setting up uh, an internship, a competition by going into schools in disadvantaged areas and ultimately selecting a student for a year uh, who would be able to come into court, uh, observe the criminal justice system. A grant will be available to that intern. Uh, the pandemic has delayed its implementation, uh, but I am excited by it in order to give disadvantaged students opportunities which they might not otherwise have had. And that also applies to those who've had the experience of the competition itself, uh, albeit they are not selected each year. Uh, so those be those are my standout moments. For anyone listening to the podcast this evening who is particularly interested and keen to hear more about the internship that you've just spoken of, are there any further details in terms of a name that they may be able to Google for the scheme or how they might keep an eye out for when that scheme becomes released? Well, we are doing it in, in actual fact, in conjunction with Everton uh, in uh, the community. It is going to be Merseyside-based, uh, and we have already, or we did prior to the pandemic, select particular schools that we are actually going to go into, uh, talk to these students, and then uh, set a, a competition for them. But um, I'll gladly, in due course, uh, supply uh, the details if anybody would wish to know more. And perhaps this sort of scheme, which is really very one of a kind and the first of its sort that I'm aware of anyhow, may become a flagship for similar schemes to crop up in other cities in the country. Well, I'd like to think so. Uh, we can't claim that we are the first of its kind because I believe that at the Old Bailey, a similar uh, scheme is in being. My very final question this evening, and I think on the basis of everything that you've shared with me tonight, I know the answer, but it's a question that I love to ask my guests because I think everyone's reasoning for their answer is very different and it's always intriguing to know why it is that people get out of bed in the morning to do the job they do and so my last question is do you love your job and if so why i'm going to answer that question in four sentences if i may i do love my job because it has given me an opportunity to try to make things better to try and do right, as I say. Isn't that what justice is all about? Uh, giving those who've been wronged a sense uh, of justice. Uh, I love my job 
because, as I said earlier, you do meet the bad, the mad, uh, and the sad. Uh, I love my job because every day uh, is different. And as I've already stated, for most who appear before me, it is one of the most important days in their lives. I also love my job because you are afforded the opportunity on occasions to give someone a second chance to straighten his or or her life. Uh, Opening someone's eyes to the harm they have caused in the hope that he, she and others uh, can be deterred uh, from living a life that ultimately destroys not just them, uh, but others too. Perhaps that's why all those years ago, I was thinking about becoming uh, a social worker, but life took uh, a different course. Judge, thank you very much for joining me this evening. It has been so insightful to hear the answers to your questions from the judicial perspective, and I think it's a very rare thing indeed, and I'm sure our listeners will be very grateful and intrigued with everything you've shared. So thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to the Raising the Bar podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review. And for more information, check us out on Twitter at Raising the Bar GI.